Please turn to Matthew chapter 7 with me. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time you have a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, or to throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do so, they will trample them under, your, under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them to do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer before we begin. Oh, Father, I thank you for the words of the song speak of your strength being perfect when ours is gone. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who carries us when we can't carry on. The reminder that we are raised in your power and that the weak are made strong. Oh, Father, thank you. And I pray this morning your word would go forth. I pray that you would accomplish the very purpose for which you intend your word to be spoken this morning. I pray for attentive hearts. I pray the Holy Spirit would apply the truths in this text to the hearts and minds of those here this morning. May your word go forth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today it is my hope that you learn something about this God of the Scriptures. I believe there is a word this morning, a very clear word about this God of the Scriptures. I hope as well that you see something of Jesus Christ, the one who is speaking in this text in Matthew chapter 7, 7 through 12. It's my hope also, church, that you hear clearly from the Holy Spirit who serves as our greatest teacher for those who have Christ in them. To gain an understanding of the text, what it says, what it means, 
These are important parts, important aspects every time we open the word and study the word together. There's also an application element, though, that needs to be addressed and seen as applied. How do we see it? As applied by the power of the Holy Spirit and lived out. Or, biblically speaking, James chapter 1, right, reminds us that the word, this word requires hearers and doers. Hearers and those willing to respond in obedience to what they hear from the scriptures. May this not be, may this never be, simply an exercise of walking in the door, sitting in a chair, hearing a message, and leaving unchanged. May it never be so. I'd like to ask you this morning, as we look at this text in Matthew 7, of what value is prayer to you? Of what value is prayer to you? I believe if given the time to answer the question, I would imagine that one in Christ would place it high on the value scale. And yet, from what we've already covered in chapter 6, the things of value, the things you treasure in life, they actually get done, don't they? They get accomplished, right? So where then does prayer fit into your life? If it is of value, is it being accessed? If it is of value... Are you taking advantage of the wonderful privilege that you have in Christ to come into his presence at all times? Isn't that wonderful news? We have opportunity, being in Christ, to come into his presence, to ask of him, to seek him, to knock, that he might hear. That's not reserved, church. For a time on Sunday morning inside walls. If prayer is of value in your life, why don't you speak more of it? Why, why is it that so many conversations are absent of prayer? How many times have you, I'm raising my hand, I've been there. How many times have you been in a conversation? And another brother, another sister tells you something going on in his life. And your response, something to the effect of, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. As a church, I believe it would be good for us that as we stop and have conversation, one of the elements that gets involved in the conversation is prayer. When we hear of a need, that we lift it before this God that we serve. The text is pointing us to God this morning. There are going to be some character traits of God. We're going to see they shine very brightly in the text this morning. What does a prayer life say about your relationship with Christ, church? And conversely, what does the absence 
of a prayer life say about your relationship with Christ? If we step back and look at a bigger picture, what would the king of the kingdom, we're talking about the kingdom, right? The king of this kingdom. What would the king of the kingdom have to say about your relationship with him this morning? Not this past week, not what's going on this morning. How are things between you and the Lord? Because you see, asking that question is significant rather than asking someone else what they might think about how you're doing. What does the king of the kingdom have to say about your relationship with him this morning? As you turn your attention to Matthew chapter 7, I would ask this question. What does Jesus command of you in regard to your life in Christ? And I use the word command intentionally. For in this text, Jesus is not lobbing ideas for an approach to prayer. He's not suggesting, here's a good way to do it. No, what's spoken right here in Matthew 7, 7 through 11 in particular, is a command, an imperative pertaining to prayer. And the command is expressed in three words. Here are the three words. Young people, you can get these three words. I want you to remember these three words today. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. We're going to see that the object of all three of these imperatives is the Lord God. When you pray, you are asking of whom? God. The Father. When you pray, you are seeking His face. You're seeking His guidance. You're seeking His direction. When you pray, you are knocking at His door, pleading for His intervention, desiring to have His wisdom manifested upon your situation. Now, it's important for us to see that with these imperatives, with these commands in verse 7, to see two things. First of all, they are connected. The three together are connected, and yet individually they can stand alone in various contexts throughout Scripture. So how are they connected? Let me give you two. Grammatically speaking, you see the connection pretty quickly when you study the text out. Perhaps you've heard it said about this text that these words ask, seek, and knock are all, grammatically speaking, present tense Active imperatives, which that's fancy lingo for rendering a translation that would be put forth something to this effect. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. The three taken together point you to an ongoing work called for by the Lord. This command to ask and to seek and to knock is to be a way of life for the child of God. Not something to do only when convenient. Not only for big ticket items in your life. Not only as a last result when you've tried to fix your own situation. But they're seen also together, collectively. We look at asking and seeking and knocking. They serve together to make this, I was thinking, musically, 
and how in the course of music, and you hear this in a, in a band, and how the music swells to a resounding crescendo. And I see that here in these three words, ask, seek, knock. They seem to build upon each other, don't they? The Lord would have you exercise all three of these commands. In doing so, your dependency upon the Lord is made manifest. Where these commands are absent in your life, what is seen then is a lack of dependency and trust. The call goes out to those in Christ Jesus. Ask, seek, knock, keep on doing it. Seen individually. These commands are manifested a great deal throughout the course of Scripture. I just share a few. This is in no way, shape, or form exhaustive. But this will give you a picture. We look at the word ask or asking. James chapter 1, verse 5 talks about if any of you lacks wisdom, what are you to do? Ask. Ask. Ask of God. And what's it go on to say? This God we serve is a God who will give generously to all without finding fault. Isn't that good news? What else about asking? Well, in that same book of James, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, James says, yet you do not have because you do not what? Ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. What do you mean? That you may spend it on your pleasures. So the question goes out here, what is it that you are asking for? What is your motive in asking God? How about 1 John chapter 5, 14 and 15? Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything, here's the caveat, according to his will. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask in accordance to his will, right? We know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And so there is this confidence that we can have in this God whom we serve when we are asking in accordance to his will. John 15, 7. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. There's the condition. If my words abide in you and you abide in me, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. So what do we find out here about asking? Here's the thing in this particular verse in John 15, 7. Relationship with Christ is crucial. Are you abiding in him? Do his words abide in you? How about John 16, 23 and 24? And in that day, talking about the day that he's going to be back, he's going to be coming back. You ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, Jesus says, that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Passage that's been familiar here in our church family over the last several weeks. Colossians chapter 1, Paul's writing, for this reason, we also, he says, since the day we heard of it, which is the love of the church of Colossae, Do not cease to pray for you and to ask. What's Paul asking? What are they asking about in regard to the Colossian believers? To ask 
that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Oh, the word is, is filled with many passages that we can look to on asking of God. But there's also passages that speak to seeking, seeking him. One that came to mind this week as I was thinking through this element, the command of to seek him. I was drawn to the Proverbs. I was drawn to Proverbs chapter 2. There are many we could use here, but I'll begin in verse 4, chapter 2. If you seek her, he's been talking about wisdom and understanding and discernment. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Church, this morning as we think about seeking God, we need to ask the question, why is it that you're seeking God? Are you seeking God? What's that look like? What's the end result of seeking God for, as the proverb writer talks about, wisdom and discernment and understanding? All these things that he speaks of here in chapter 2. If you fast forward to verse 20, there's a result here on the, on the, in the back end of pursuing these things, of seeking these things, so that you may walk, verse 20, chapter 2, in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. You see, seeking the Lord leads to a walk that pleases Him because He's the one, in Matthew 13, we talked about this several weeks ago, He's the treasure, isn't He? He's the great treasure. He's the pearl of great price. And you're seeking Him. Seeking the Lord requires a desire to hear from the king and to be affirmed that this is the way. Walk in it. Right? We read the word and we get an affirmation of how to walk. And we don't take it as just some good news. No, if we're seeking, if we're desiring to hear from the Lord, our king, and we hear from him in the scripture, his word that he's given to us, walk in this way. The words to Joshua, do not turn to the right or to the left. Walk in the way. Well, you might be drawn to the end of chapter 6 as you consider seeking. Right? Matthew six thirty three, Jesus has already shared with us, but seek first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. If Jesus has called his children to seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How then does that affect and impact your prayer life with the Lord? If you're called to seek first the kingdom of God, shouldn't that include then a steady diet of time with the king? The one who reigns and rules over his kingdom. If you're going to walk according to the king's standards, shouldn't prayer, shouldn't asking and seeking and knocking, shouldn't these things be the norm for the Christian life? 
what we're talking about this morning is not something this ought to be normal. You know, we've heard the, there's a book title, right? The normal Christian. This ought to be a part of it. This ought to be a vibrant part of our Christian life, our Christian walk, our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's knocking as well. This whole idea of persevering, enduring, Continuing, pleading, Romans 12, 12, in the midst of many words there, instructive for the church. Romans 12, 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. It's something we continue in. Keep on knocking. Ephesians six eighteen. at the conclusion of putting on the whole armor, Paul says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer. In everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 4, verse 2, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 through 18, see that no one renders evil for, any, for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for both yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without what? Ceasing. Keep on praying. Keep on knocking. In everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then there's 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. He says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is, this is key. This is so important. It may explain, perhaps, why we don't take time to pray. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares, all of them, upon him, for he cares for you. I'd like for you to turn to Luke's gospel for just a moment. As we consider knocking, I'd just like to read a few verses in Luke 18. Jesus, he spoke a parable to them. What was the big idea of the parable? He gives it right out of the gate. That men always ought to pray and not lose heart. I'll read that again. That's that's key to what comes next. He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, 
lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Hear. Shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, who keep on knocking, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? That's a very sobering question right there in verse 8. Will he find faith? Will he find his children, his own people, pleading, knocking, asking, seeking of him? Understanding that they are dependent upon him for all things. Church, are you knocking on the Lord's door to get what you want? Or to communicate with your righteous heavenly father? In knocking on the Lord's door, do you do so only when pressed up against the wall? Our world seems to be operating in that fashion. In other words, when you knock, is there, any, is there any familiarity present in that relationship with you and the Lord? Is there any relationship present to build on? See, the subject matter of prayer ought to remind you of your relationship with God. This relationship, we need to remember, was established by God through what Christ did at the cross, right? He reconciled you, Paul says in Corinthians, he reconciled you unto himself through the cross, defeating death, providing for you the means of coming into his presence. You see, you were once far away, removed from a relationship with God, without God, without hope. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near by the blood. Ephesians 2.13. You see, the world would draw your attention to what it has to offer. And there's a plentiful buffet of worldly goods... Waiting. Right? They're all over the place. Clamoring for your attention. Jesus here, right here in this text, in Matthew 7, is commanding you. He's commanding you. He's not calling you to check the box of religion. It's exactly what he's speaking against in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Not to simply verbalize, I'm a Christian. He's not looking for a show of hands to see how many have attended church, the gathering of the church in a building over the last six months. He's not looking. He's not impressed with your resume of Bible studies that you've done in someone else's home. His commands here are calling you to a, are you ready for this one? A lifelong commitment. You remember those fishermen? In Luke chapter 5, 
Follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. The end of that particular passage in Luke 5 says that they forsook all. They left their nets and they followed him. This is a call to follow wholeheartedly. Lifelong commitment. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Matthew 7, verse 8. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to what comes immediately after verse 7. Two words. For everyone. For everyone. If you're here today and you're not quite sure about your own relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I want you to know some good news. Everyone who asks in accordance to the Father's will receives. Everyone who seeks the Lord God will find him. Everyone who knocks upon his door, the text says, it will be opened. Everyone. These are important, wonderful truths for the child of God in particular. But I'd also like to hold out hope for some of you here today who may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. God has made it possible for you to enter in as well. Romans 10, 11, 12, and 13, the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's good news. That provides hope. That ought to stir us up being in Christ to continue to be diligent, to pray for those that we know in our sphere who do not have a relationship, a vibrant, living, active relationship with Jesus Christ. There's hope. The emphasis in verses 7 and 8, it's on the one who gives. It's on the one who enables you to find. It's on the one responsible for opening a door to you. Jesus in verses 9 and 10 asks two questions. Each verse begins with or. The questions serve, I believe, as a link between 7 and 8 and verse 11. And it reads this way. Jesus says, Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Sort of silly questions, right? I mean, we were reading this, and this is kind of, well, you know, it doesn't take us really all that long to figure out the answer to these questions. At least I hope not. I hope as an earthly father, we would genuinely desire to give our son bread instead of a stone, fish instead of a serpent, Jesus, in the midst of his preaching 
and teaching. He uses questions on many different occasions, doesn't he? But we can be assured of this one thing. When Jesus asks a question, he's not asking the question because he's in the dark about something. He doesn't ask the question of Philip. How are we going to take care of all these people? John's gospel, I love it because John's gospel gives us the behind the scenes. He asks, it gives us the reason why he asked Philip the question, to test him. See, this Jesus that we're reading about here, he knows everything. Jesus serves as the answer He truly is the answer for all of the world today. May that be our prayer that the world would come to know who this Jesus is. This Jesus of the scriptures, not the Jesus of one's own imagination. So why then does he ask questions of men? And why in particular questions right here in Matthew 7, 9 and 10? The first question centers on a man whose son... Asks him for bread. What is bread? Is it not a basic necessity? Right? Useful for the body? If his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? And the obvious answer right here in the text is no. He won't give him a stone. And you move to the second question. It poses the son asking his father for a fish. Will the father give his son a serpent? And once again, there's an obvious answer, no. What father would rightfully exchange bread for a stone or fish? For a serpent. You see, even, even we as earthly fathers can, can figure that one out. Oh, but before you get big-headed, fathers, we're going to read something here in just a moment that may pierce you just a bit. It's important to understand Luke's parallel passage here. We're not going to get into the entirety of it, but it is important to at least bring it forward. In Luke's parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, Jesus brings forth a third question. Which of you, if your son asks for an egg? So we have bread, we have fish, and we have an egg. If your son asks for an egg, would would you give him a scorpion? No earthly father is going to rightfully give his son something harmful, something not useful. And we need to still remember, true, it is very true, that fathers sometimes do err right here in terms of what they provide for their children. The point here, though, is drawing us back to the goodness of our Heavenly Father. See, Jesus is using these questions to bridge the commands in Chapter 7, verse 7. The Heavenly Father commands His children to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking at His door. I want you to look at how Jesus moves from personal questions to personal application. Verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him, to those who ask him. I'd like to ask a question maybe just up front after reading that. Where was your focus as I read through that? Do you find it difficult, some of you, to get past 
Those two words at the beginning of the sentence, being evil. If you then, being evil, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? You know, we don't have to look very far in the scriptures. You go back into Genesis and you see that God was grieved that he had made. He was sorry. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's three pages into this Bible. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on this earth and he was grieved in his heart. Jesus says, if you then being evil, if you knowing how to give good gifts to your children, to your own children, how much more will your father who is in heaven, listen to this, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. To those who ask him. Do you see where this is going? This is taking us right back to verse 7. To the commands. See, I believe if you have ears to hear this morning, you'll recognize that this text is more about God than it is about you. Yes, it is instructive for how to operate here on earth in relationship to God, your heavenly father. But the message Jesus is sounding here is an alarm for his followers to trust him. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, right? If you being evil are able to know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Luke's account of the same passage exchanges the Holy Spirit in the place of good things. Contextually, the Holy Spirit is being contrasted with the power of Beelzebub, which comes just a few verses later in Luke's context. Luke, in his gospel as a whole, speaks quite often of the Holy Spirit's work. Drawing men to himself, speaking to a predominantly Gentile audience. It's also true that any of the good things described in Matthew's account would fall under the umbrella, under the operation of the Holy Spirit working in you. These are not contradictory, church. Verse 11 points you back to verse 7. Will you trust him? Will you by faith be fully convinced that whatever he has promised, he is also able to perform, Romans 4, 21. Will you take him at his word this morning and live your life in continual dependence upon your heavenly father? You see, in calling you toward the father, Jesus is also demonstrating the father's character. Jesus is saying, my heavenly father is reliable. You can count on him. 
You can trust him. You can depend on him for all things. And so no matter where you're at as you sit here in a chair this morning, no matter what's going on in your life, Jesus is teaching. Jesus is speaking a word this morning and he is putting it right out there for everybody to see. My father who is in heaven can be trusted. Will you ask of him? Will you seek him? Will you keep on knocking? Look finally at verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You know, I was reminded of of Micah 6 verse 8. And I read this. He has shown you, O man, what is good. He's shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What is it that you want men to do to you? I would guess that there's not a one of us here who would like someone else to cheat them. I would venture to say that you would have no desire for someone to steal from you. Probably wouldn't like somebody yelling at you either, would you? We could make a list. Things that we wouldn't want to be a recipient from someone else. We wouldn't desire it. See, the assumption put forth in the text is that you would like others to do good to you. What is good then? That's the question. What, according to God, is deemed good? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. These are things you ought to want men to extend to you. Let's be clear about, about this verse here in verse 12, Matthew 7. We oftentimes hear this as the golden rule, don't we? Huh? That golden rule. It's golden. It, it truly is golden. If we would but understand what it's saying. Jesus is not saying that whatever someone else does to you, you lash back at them in the same manner. He's not saying that. This is not a revenge verse given to man. A license to shout back at that other person or to steal from them just because they stole from you. No, Jesus is directing us back to the law and the prophets. That's what the connect says, for this is the law and the prophets. Is it the entirety of the law and the prophets? No. How do I know? I'm not making it up. If you turn to Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34, we see that the Pharisees heard that he had silenced, that's Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, and they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Here in Matthew 7, Jesus is addressing men-to-men relationships. 
it too relates to the law and the prophets. How so? How about love for one another? Love for one another. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all these things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Colossians 3, 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. If you turn to, to Romans, Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, we see these words from Paul. Owe no one anything except to what? Love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For, he, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, what about Paul as he writes Galatians chapter 5? Starting in verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. One final verse I'd like to share. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. How do we know love? A little bit later in 1 John, it says we love him because he first loved us. That's how we know love. But what does that love look like? Verse 16, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. How do you know what love is, church? God showed you the greatest expression of that love through what Christ did at the cross. We're about to enter into a time where we partake of the bread and drink of the cup. It represents the greatest expression of God's love for us through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And as he laid down his life, that's Jesus, as he laid down his life for you, so too he calls each one of his children to lay down their lives for one another. Church, the commands are put forth this morning from Jesus. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. If as a child of God, you know anything at all about what this word says about our Heavenly Father. I would pray and hope that we would be diligent to make this a continual, lifelong pursuit of walking in the path of righteousness. He's called us into relationship, church. 
He's reconciled us unto himself to make it so. What's your response to his commands? I pray that as a church, we would be diligent to keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you give to us. Thank you for the hope that you provide for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you this morning that you are a reliable God. You are a God that we can depend on. You are a faithful God. You are a loving God. In light of who you are, oh, Father, I pray that we would be responsive to your word this morning. That we would take action in light of what you have called us to be about doing. Even as we walk these truths out, may we do so with a dependence upon your Holy Spirit to shine a light to our path. Allow your word to serve as a lamp to our feet. Oh, Father, thank you that you've given to us everything we need for this life and for godliness. The resource of the Holy Spirit, the word that you've entrusted to us, this word filled with precious promises that we can stand firmly upon. Thank you so much for this word that stands firm in the heavens. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.